Even though Washington, D.C. has been described as 68 square miles surrounded by reality, the folks in the White House and Capitol Hill continue to affect our reality. What changes do you need to know to keep your practice and your clients up to date? We'll find out on part one of this two-part episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we are once again talking with Jessica Waltman. In addition to being principal at Forward Health Consulting, she is our resident guru or if you're afflicted with political correctness, Gouret, on all things legal, legislative, regulatory, and especially what the heck is going on in D.C., which was going to be the first question that I asked. But given that we're recording this on October 4th, and all of you in the audience know what's going on in Washington, D.C. this morning, I'll start a little bit differently. What's going on with healthcare in Washington, D.C., Jess? Well, first of all, I have to let out my suppressed laughter of being called a gourette. That's a new one for me. But thank you, David, and thank you for having me back on the podcast. It's always a highlight when I get to do that. It's not always a highlight talking about whatever in the world is going on with Congress, though. As we all know, they are quite distracted with other things, but that doesn't mean they've completely ignored health care. The House is actually out of session right now. They canceled their first two weeks of work in October. And just for those of you that are keeping count, that means they had about 10 days of business in the house between roughly when we had our last podcast and now, but that's neither here nor there. So they've canceled their last two weeks of legislative work to go back into their districts and campaign and be with the people. They're not voting again until after the November elections, the second week of November. Before they left, they did pass what is a series of bills that are kind of known as the Tax Cuts 2.0. And one thing in it was a delay to the national premium tax, sometimes called the HIT tax. And they would delay that to 2021. That tax has been on and off in effect. It was in effect for 2018. Now 2019 rates, it will not affect. It would delay it till 2021. But that bill needs to be passed by the Senate. The Senate is doing a lot of advising and consenting right now. And they're, they've got a lot going on. They are scheduled to be here all through October. But it doesn't seem like they are going to take up this tax cut 2.0 bill. They doesn't seem like too popular there. So that's unlikely to move forward. So we may see that hit tax come back again. But probably not before the election. You may see some things coming out of Congress between now and the election that seem like they're interesting. There's been a legislative effort to deal with surprise billing. There's a lot of resolutions going on 
about how much they love people with pre-existing conditions and would never want to hurt them. Those are mostly, you know, bills that are being introduced on both sides of the aisle to kind of gain points leading up to the election. There was legislation to deal with some opioid abuses and gag clauses and pharmaceutical prices of, you know, allowing pharmacists to disclose costs when they're cheaper to just pay cash rather than use your insurance. But other than that, there's really not that much going on between now and the election. There was something that happened with air ambulances, and I know that's been a a pain point, especially for those of us who used to pay claims or still pay claims or pay the premiums for them. Yes, that is true. So one thing that did get done, air ambulances is an interesting thing. So that's where if you're in a car wreck or, you know, sometimes it's a big issue in rural areas, but it can really happen anywhere where you need to be medevaced to a different medical facility. It's almost never that you're in an air ambulance because you chose to be there and that it's not a life-threatening emergency. But interestingly, because they're airplanes, they are regulated not like any other provider of medical care service. They're regulated like an airline. And states cannot do anything to touch them. So some, and the prices just went crazy over the last few years for a wide variety of reasons. And people had no idea. And insurers weren't including these air ambulances in their networks because they couldn't afford it. And then, you know, you have a horrific accident and then you get this whopping, and I mean whopping like it could cost as much as a house bill for air ambulance services. And various states tried to do things to regulate it and they were all struck down by the federal courts because it's very clear in federal law that states can't touch it. So the House passed legislation last year as part of the aviation reauthorization of the FAA to allow the states to do it. The Senate didn't agree to that. They did agree to create an industry council, which, you know, the players are to be named. And that group would kind of come to a compromise solution relative to air ambulance prices. So I know that agents and brokers having to have resolved these claims disputes have interest in participating in that panel. And we're just going to have to wait to see how that panel shapes up and whether or not you know, in people that are interested in price transparency and bringing costs down can get involved there and do something about it. So we'll see, but it's a, it's a start. Anything is better than no action at all. Now, let's go beyond Congress, who these days puts the fun in dysfunctional or takes the fun out of dysfunctional. I'm not sure which. Depends on the day. There's been a lot of regulatory stuff going on. What, what's happening on the regulatory front? Well, there is a lot going on on that. I do want to just go back to Congress for one second and say after the election, it is entirely possible that there will be a lame, there will be a lame duck session because they have to fund the government again. And that bill is a must pass bill because the government's going to run out of money again in December. So when they do that, we may see some things like extensions of the hit tax, a further delay of the Cadillac tax, things to help with employer reporting, some HSA improvements are all on the list of things that people would like to do then and attach to a must pass bill. But you know, every industry has a list of things they'd like to include. So it's possible there's a few things Congress could do for health insurance purposes between now and then. But other than that, you know, not too much. Regulatory different story. So one thing that a lot of people with large employers may be interested in, and those that offer self-funded plans, 
is that there is a new round of enforcement letters coming out relative to employer reporting and the employer mandate. So the IRS is gearing up to do enforcement for the employer mandate and for the 2016 tax year. So they did 2015 already. They're coming for 2016. And they're also starting to send letters. There's the penalties for the employer mandate itself. And then there's also completely separate penalties for not doing your employer reporting, the you know, 1095, 1094, that reporting correctly or on time. And some businesses just ignored that, particularly the first year or two. Businesses are starting to get letters where the IRS says something along the lines of, hey, we've noticed we don't have the employer reporting for you for 2015 and 2016. Are we missing that? Where is that? And it's not assessing a penalty yet, but it shows that they're looking into that. And those penalties are really, really strict. And it doesn't really matter if you didn't do it or it's late, that doesn't really excuse you. Now, the IRS did give some good faith compliance relief for last year and the two years prior. But that's just if you make an accidental mistake, if you code somebody wrong. It doesn't help you if you're late or you don't do it. This year, the employer reporting forms are being finalized and their instructions are being finalized right now. They don't look too different from years past. One thing that looks like it is going to be different is that it doesn't look like there's going to be any good faith compliance relief coming up for this year, and it doesn't look like they're going to give any deadline extensions. That can always change, but for right now, it looks like they're going to go for the original schedule, and employer reporting is going to be due the same time as Form W-2 reporting is done, so businesses can kind of follow that time frame. And it doesn't look like there's going to really be any compliance relief if you do the coding incorrectly. And now, a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years' experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now, Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health Solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. So what's going on with the EEOC wellness rules? Those are going to be vacated in January? Yeah, that's another crazy thing that brokers and employers really need to be aware of if they offer a wellness program. So wellness programs tend to ask questions about health-related things, even if they're just participatory, and sometimes they incent spouses to participate, and they ask questions about medical history, you know, just to get a better general sense of things. 
There has been long-standing disputes about how the Americans for Disabilities Act and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act work with wellness programs. And there was just some questions out there. So a few years ago, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission came out with some regulations designed to give employers some clear parameters and safe harbors of if you conduct your wellness program this way, then you're not really going to have a problem with the ADA and GINA. And it's a long story, but basically the AARP sued them, challenging the rules. And one of the things that they didn't like was the way that they set up the wellness incentives that you could use. And so they said it really didn't render the program voluntary. And and bottom line, there's like a big cart battle about it. But the judge basically said, well, the way that the EEOC came up with these rules in this 30% amount, the way that they did it is kind of arbitrary. So we would like you to go back and redo it. And the judge said this about 15 months ago. And the EEOC has not done it. And he said, I'm not going to vacate the rules right now for 2018 because that's too soon. The employers need time to get it together. And the EEOC needs the time to do this thoughtfully. But They've had a long time and the EEOC has done nothing. And the judge said, well, you know, we'll give you the long time. And if you don't get it done by January 1st, 2019, then your rules just go poof. Well, if the EEOC has done nothing and they kept saying we're going to do something in October, but it now appears like they are not going to. So that puts employers in kind of a tricky position because if they have a wellness program that asks for any type of medical information from an enrollee or in any way incents a spouse to participate and give a medical history, the EEOC rules apply to them. And they, they apply to how you could set the level of incentives. So now there's, if the rules are gone for January 1st, What's an employer supposed to do? So there's a couple of different choices I think employers have. One would be to just kind of continue on as you were doing things before and deal with it later if anything is enforced because they're using this 30% standard for incentives and the 30% amount is based on the single employee rate. That's a little bit of a different standard than other wellness programs use. So you could go with the existing standard and know that you might have to refund, you know, incentives back to people or know that there might be enforcement action. You know that somebody might challenge your wellness program based on the ADA and GINA. You know, that's kind of tricky. Or you could use the old wellness program incentives that have been in place since HIPAA and the ACA. And so you could base it on the overall premium the person pays and just kind of go back to just the existing rules and not worry about those relative to questions that you ask spouses and you know, kind of go by the old rules. Or you could you know, say, we're not going to have a wellness program that requires people to answer any health-related questions or go, you know, have medical testing. And then, you know, another thing that you could do is if you're considering putting in a new wellness program, you might want to rule on that and say like, hey, we'll just go with one that complies with the old rules for now. So if you don't have one, but you're considering it, you might want to think about the scope. But it really puts employers in a tricky position And we have to wait and see if the EEOC will issue anything. But right now, it looks like they're not going to. 
And if we hear from the judge, we'll hear from them after the first of the year, you suspect? Well, the judge ruled on it. The judge's part is done. The judge said, here's 15 months, get it together, EEOC. If you don't, the rule goes poof on January 1st, 2019. That decision has been made. I don't think the judge ever thought that the EEOC would not act. And you know, without going into a lot of political, the EEOC is a commission. It requires different members on it. I think one of the reasons why they haven't acted is just a shortage of people. Like they don't have the people in place to move the regulation forward. And that's why it seems unlikely that that's going to change. And if they do something, you know, it's at this point, it's getting so late, it's not going to affect, you know, it's not going to help plans that have a 1 1 renewal. But employers are in the crossfire regardless. So it's a kind of a wait and see. Yes, unfortunately, yes. All right. Well, change of subject. Some advisors have done really well and differentiated themselves using QSERAs. And there is some conversation, at least, about a desire to expand those. Right. So President Trump last year, when he issued his health insurance, you know, health coverage executive order that addressed association health plans, short term limited duration plans, it also addressed HRAs. And he said he wanted to try to expand the qualified small employer HRA concept to larger employers. And for any listeners that don't know what the Qualified Small Employer HRA or CASERA is basically an employer groups under 50 can choose to, under very clear circumstances, open up a special kind of HRA and allow individuals to use that only to purchase individual coverage. And then those employees may be eligible for kind of a modified form of exchange-based subsidies, but there's all these rules and questions about how that HRA works, those, those qualified small employer HRA works. And the Treasury Department did issue some clarifying guidance last year. First of all, we're looking to see, will they issue some more? Because there was a lot of questions. You know, an HRA typically is a group health plan arrangement. It has to have plan documents. It needs to do employer reporting. How does that work in this particular situation, some of those issues were never really resolved. And then the other thing is the law had to be changed to allow the Caceres. They were part of the 20th Century Cures Act. And the law says really clearly, you know, under 50. Apparently, President Trump and then also some members of the House and some people in the administration would really like to expand this concept to large employers. And they're looking at regulatory ways to expand that beyond groups of 50. Honestly, it's a little unclear to me. I'm, I'm very curious as how they think they are going to do this because I think the law is, is you know, pretty clear, like the number 50 is spelled out. But people are very creative and it'd be interesting to see what, what may come out there. But we are definitely hearing rumors that there is a HRA regulation coming our way soon. And we'll have to see how that could impact employer choices in the year ahead. So we also have some short-term rules that are here now on AHPs. What's that all about and how do the states factor in, et cetera? Right. So two regulations were finalized basically over the summer, one on association health plans and then one on short-term limited duration policies. So AHPs, association health plans, 
Basically, the rule comes up with a new regulatory framework. There are some existing AHPs out there nationally. You know, some states have them far more prevalent than others. Some states, there are none at all. This would create a new regulatory framework. So an AHP, an association health plan, would have to pick one framework or the other. If they choose to do this under the new rules, brand new ones can start happening as of April 1st. The new rules don't really take effect. They take effect for old AHPs that want to change. There's some effective dates for September 1 and, and January 1, but that would really affect old ones that are making changes. But new, brand new organizations that are starting up to form this would take place on April 1st. In January 1st, an existing organization could try to organize an AHP under the new rules. So these plans would be able to offer, you know, allow technically, you know, self-employed people, people across geographic areas, they would be able to organize basically just for the purpose of offering health insurance and one other service. So it's interesting to see, and then they will be individual, they will have to abide by rating rules. You know, current AHPs, there can still be medical underwriting within the groups. That would not be the case with the new ones. So they're just like a different framework. So we'll see whether these new associations will pop up or if existing associations will try and offer the coverage, how the carriers will respond because a health insurance carrier then has to offer to work with them. So we probably will see it just starting to hit the market in 2019. For employer groups, you know, if they have a January 1st renewal, it's probably not going to be a good option for them this year unless they live in one of those states with an existing climate. But the interesting thing is it gives a ton, the rule gives a ton of responsibility to state regulators. And state regulators are right now making really significant decisions concerning how they're going to regulate these new entities. And some states are being really aggressive and they don't want them or they want them in a very limited controlled fashion. Other states are being a little bit broader or just kind of sifting out what choices they meet. So depending on where you live, you really need to watch your state insurance commissioner and see what they are doing in their state relative to association plans because it's going to be a big patchwork quilt. Question: Does 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 all of the state intervention have anything to do? There was some early guidance about how these plans might run smack into or be considered miwas, and various states have exactly the kind of patchwork of of regulations or permissions that you mentioned. Is that still a factor, or has that been sorted out in the final rule? No, it's still a factor. And then the interesting thing is with these association plans, because the association membership can be geographically based. So you could take a major metropolitan area like, you know, Philadelphia, where you pull from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and that could be one geographic center. You're dealing with the laws of three different states, the opinions of three different regulators, or you could form an association based on industry specific. So it could be strawberry growers. And you could get strawberry growers that live in Pennsylvania wanting to buy a strawberry growers policy offered by the Strawberry Association that is incorporated in Massachusetts. You know, listeners, if I'm messing up where strawberries grow, please forgive me. I'm just looking at my own leftover breakfast and seeing the strawberries. So that's where I came from. But basically, strawberry growers could 
come from all different states. And then where does the regulatory authority flow? It flows from the state from where you bought the policy. So you you would be then subject to whatever that state is. And it's possible that these plans will gravitate towards states where the regulatory climate is more favorable. So that's just going to be an emerging market issue. We're just going to really have to watch and see how it happens. Same thing for the short-term limited duration plans. That's really more of an individual market issue, but it's, I think, worthwhile for, for anyone in the benefit business to know about because right now, short-term plans were on the market for really, you know, for years and years and years, and they were allowed to be longer durations than three months in most states. But the Obama administration limited them to three months duration a few years ago. Now, the Trump administration's rule essentially turns back time and says that they are, you know, 364 day policies and then they can be renewed up to 36 months. But the thing is that also preserves state control. And the interesting thing is these short term policies don't have to comply with all the ACA's individual market requirements. So they don't, you know, they're not minimum essential coverage. They don't have to abide by the rating rules. They don't have to be guarantee issue. They don't have to cover pre-existing conditions. They don't have to cover preventive care first dollar. None of that. So they can be a lot cheaper. And now that the individual mandate penalty is $0, the fact that they're not considered minimum essential coverage and they wouldn't have met the individual mandate standard, it doesn't matter anymore. So these plans may be marketed to compete with individual plans in different states. But state regulators, again, have a lot of authority here. They could change the duration. They could say, hey, we want them only to be six months with, you know, one renewal. They could say, we want these things to come with this super long warning label. We want them to come with a medical loss ratio requirement. We want this. We want that. We say that all plans in our state, regardless, have to be guarantee issue. They could do all kinds of things to kind of clamp down on these individual policies. And some states had existing laws already that make them not viable market options there. You know, for example, in in New Jersey, because of their existing state guarantee issue laws, these policies don't work there. So they're not going to really affect the market in New Jersey. But in neighboring states, it will. So again, if this is your market, it can be, you know, for a healthy individual, a much less expensive individual market choice. But it's different than traditional individual coverage. And your state regulator may or may not, and your state legislature may or may not look kind of into these policies and put some additional requirements on them that exceed the federal standard. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. Thank you.